after being gone on vacation for a week, and we had a great time visiting some old friends and catching up, but it's always good to be back worshiping with, with our church family. And don't know if you guys were aware last week as we were on vacation, but the Supreme Court handed down several decisions that had a lot of Americans talking, a lot of people tweeting or on social media talking about this, and it just seems that our nation is so fascinated with the court system that when something like this happens, it just overtakes our nation, or, or you can tell that our nation is overcome and so interested with the court system that, that you see so many shows about the court system. I remember being in, in school and on the days where I was sick and got to stay home, you can turn to a channel and you would just about find any show about the court system, whether it's Judge Judy or, or the People's Court or, or Judge Joe Brown or shows like Law and Order, all about the workings of our, of our court system. There's podcasts dedicated to wrongful convictions and podcasts on the Supreme Court. And I mentioned this today because in our passage today in Mark, we, we come across to the second trial of Jesus Christ. We saw over the last several weeks, Jesus was tried by the chief priests and, and the Jewish state. And now today in Mark chapter 15, we'll come to his second trial. And we see here that the first trial that Jesus had in chapter 14, verse 53, he was found guilty of blasphemy. And he was sentenced to death. And even though that was the case, even though the chief priests found him guilty, they still have to have this second trial before Pilate. And the reason being is that this was a complex relationship between the Jewish people, the Jewish state, and the Roman government, those who govern over them. Because as R.C. Sproul notes, the Jewish court actually did not have the power to execute anyone because they were under Roman control. So even though they did find him guilty of blasphemy in that kangaroo court, there was really nothing they could do to Jesus which is why they now come to this in chapter 15 where they deliver him before Pilate. And we see another sham of a trial take place here in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And what we'll see, that despite the injustice never being, being done to Jesus, despite a sham of a trial and the lies and, and the false accusations against him, in the midst of all this, in the midst of Jesus going, Looking down, knowing what's to come, never once complains, but instead, in the face of his accusers, remains silent and just continues to move forward with the will of God, which leads me to my main idea today, church. It's this. If Jesus remained silent and did not complain while he suffered in our place as the sacrifice of sinners, Jesus remained silent and did not complain while he suffered in our place as a sacrifice for sinners. And we'll see three things in today's passage. We're, we're going to see how he remained silent in the face of persecution, on, on the verge of suffering, while being wrong against. He doesn't say a word. He just remains silent. We're going to see how Jesus suffered, and we're also going to see that he is our great substitution. So if you're with me, turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in the first 15 verses page 852. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seats in front of you. That's our gift to you. If you need a Bible or if you have someone that needs a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that and give that to them. 
But God's holy, inspired, inerrant word reads, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked them, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, What? Why? Why? What evil has he done? But as they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that you are the sovereign, that you are an all-knowing God. And despite as we might, what we might perceive as an injustice, Lord, it is as you have determined for it to be, Father. As we learn and see all the pain and suffering that your son had to endure for our sake, Father. We thank you, Lord. Lord, as we spend the next several moments diving into your word, Father, help us to glean from it. Help us to grow. Convict us through your word, Father. Show us areas where we need to improve and need to hand over to you, Father. Lord, we pray this is a time of growth and edification for your people, Father. Lord, we ask that you eliminate any distractions. Help us to focus. Help us to hear your words speak to us, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of your heart be edifying to your people and acceptable to you, Lord. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, Jesus suffered well by being silent in the face of persecution and rejection. We, we see here in verse one that it was the morning time or, or early in the morning as the NASB says. We see that the priests are having a consultation or, or they're making a plan, devising a plan depending on your translation, which they've decided they need to deliver. They need to deliver Jesus to Pilate. And the reason why this is done first thing in the morning or, or early in the mornings because that is when Pilate usually held his trials. When he was going to look at cases and convict people, he would do this early in the morning, which is why everything, that was why the chief priests did everything the way they did here. Why they arrested Jesus at nighttime. Why they held their trial at night because they knew that the only time they can come and bring Jesus to Pilate was during the morning. He saw these cases first thing in the morning because he just wanted it to be done. And they, they want to risk 
coming and interrupting Pilate in the middle of his day. So they do all this. They calculate all this purposely to deliver him in the morning. They knew they had no right to execute him. They knew they didn't have anything to do. So they have to bring Jesus before Pilate in order for him to do their dirty work. And it's just by chance even that Pilate is really in Jerusalem because he usually doesn't stay in Jerusalem. His residence is in a town called Caesarea, which is on the coast of Israel, just north of Jerusalem. But traditionally, Pilate would take up residence in Jerusalem during major festivals to essentially offer crowd control. To see who's coming in and out, keep an eye on the situation, keep things calm and controlled. And so that is why we see that Pilate is here in Jerusalem and why they're able to essentially walk Jesus up to Pilate. Notice the language. They, they, they bound him up and delivered him away. There was no need for this. When, when they had arrested Jesus earlier in chapter 14, he went willingly. They came with him, as it says in, in verse 40, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Jesus had went willingly. He's been doing all of this willingly, yet they want to bound him up as if he is some type of flight risk. They want to bound him up. They are just really putting on a show. They are looking to embarrass and humiliate Jesus even more. They want it to make it look like this man is a danger to us and to you, Pilate. And so they bound him up unnecessarily. And they delivered him to Pilate, not knowing that what they're doing is exactly as Jesus said what happened in chapter 10, verse 33, when he told his disciples that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. Mark is using that language purposely to try and connect the dots here this is also a fulfillment of prophecy we see this in in leviticus 16 and in psalm 22 16 where it talks about jesus being delivered over to those who will kill him to the gentiles and so by delivering jesus to Pilate, they are not even aware that really what they're doing is simply fulfilling prophecy here which is why mark uses that word they delivered him and we see this consultation that they have, we see what they really decided to do there in verse 2, that the decision they came to be is to devise a plan. They came to this decision to fabricate civil charges against Jesus because they knew that Pilate was not interested in their blasphemy on what the Jews thought was blasphemous. So they had to come up with these civil charges to bring before him. And you see that in, in Pilate's first question in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Mark, in his true fashion, does not give us much here. Looking and seeking to be concise, he doesn't exactly tell us the charges that comes aboard, that, that the Jewish people bring against Jesus. But if you look at your other gospel accounts, you see these charges. Luke, in chapter 23 of Luke, we see the three charges that the chief priest brought before Jesus. They said that he was misleading their nation or, or corrupting their nation. He was opposing the paying of taxes to Caesar. And they also accused him that he was claiming to be the Christ, a king. Which is what Pilate is really concerned about since that is the first question he asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply replies, you have said so. Not denying anything that Claim anything, just simply, you have said so. And as we see going on in verse 3, the Jews keep, the priests keep continue to make these false accusations 
against Jesus. They continue to accuse him of many things. And Pilate, who this isn't his first trial, this isn't his first court appearance, if you will, is very used to this type of thing happening. And he's amazed that Jesus just remained silent. I imagine he's had this going on before and people arguing back and forth trying to make a case for themselves why they're not true, the accusations coming forward, and he doesn't see this from Jesus. Jesus just simply stands there, and it remains silent. Pilate's basically like, do you know what they're accusing you of? Do you know what they're trying to do? Do you have nothing to say? And he was greatly amazed, as it says in Matthew, at the silence of Jesus This is something, again, that is foretold for us in the scriptures. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. In the face of false accusations, in the face of people telling lies, knowing what's to come, Jesus simply remains there doesn't speak up, but remains silent. His emotions calm and collected, knowing that he is about to fulfill what the Father has for him. His demeanor can only be this way because he understands that what he's doing right now is the Father's will, walking in what the Father has for him. And because of that assurance, he's able to remain silent and calm. In the face of persecution, in the face of suffering and hardships, Jesus remains silent because he understands that the God of the universe has a greater purpose for all of this. And we can learn from that example that Jesus shows us here when we come to face trials and tribulations. More on that later. Point number two, we see that Jesus suffered greatly for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to skip ahead to verse 15 here, looking at what Mark writes. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We're not going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. What we're going to look is at his flogging, as it says in the NIV. We're going to see that Jesus here is scourged or flogged, that he's being whipped before his crucifixion. The primary tool here for this flogging was called a Roman flagellum, which is right, right around 20, 21 inches long. It has a piece of wooden handle, and then on the end of that wooden handle, there were several straps of leather. And attached to those straps of leather usually were bone or lead or other sharp materials tied down to make it weigh down, and they would use this to whip the back of their prisoners. And as James Edwards notes, this was a cruel and merciless beating that was in preparations for the crucifixion. He goes on to say that prisoners were often stripped and bound to a post and beaten. The whipping lacerating and stripping their flesh, often exposing the bones and entrails. One of the purposes was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion. This was so brutal that that some prisoners died before even reaching the cross. And women were exempt from either suffering or witnessing this flagellum. This was a deep and painful and gruesome thing to be done. I can honestly say I've never experienced anything as 
painful as I imagined this to be. Maybe you have, but I haven't. This was meant to cause intense pain and suffering on our Lord and Savior's back. We're not told exactly how many times Jesus was whipped. Oftentimes we hear the number 39, but nowhere in the Gospels do we see that. That number, perhaps people think of that number because in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3, it states that criminals should not receive more than 40 lashes. And so to avoid breaking this command, the practice became to just give people 39 lashes. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four talk about being lashed 40 times minus 1 on five different occasions. And I think that's where that number comes into play. But really, there's no reason to believe that the Romans would follow the Jewish custom here. We don't know exactly how often or how many times he was whipped. The purpose of this is, was vicious. It was to cause intense pain and suffering. The pain that Jesus had to endure through this was intense. It's unbearable. And all of this was necessary in order for the sins of this world, in order for our sins to be forgiven. Blood needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. We see that all the way back in, the, in Genesis when Adam and Eve had to cover themselves with animal skin and blood being shed there because of their sin. Blood needed to be shed for the atonement of sin according to the Mosaic law. In Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes the atonement by the life. The whipping, the flogging, and the crucifixion here, it shows us how devastating the nature of sin truly is. It shows us what the wrath of God looks like towards those who have sinned against him. This was needed. The pain, the suffering, all that our Lord and Savior had to endure needed. He needed to endure that in order for people's sins to be forgiven. Jesus suffered greatly for the forgiveness of sins. And he needed to. We avoid that type of pain and suffering because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Which gets me to the next point. Point number three, Jesus is our great substitute. Going back to verse six here. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For it perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered them up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. You see that this has become a custom. This was something that the governor or pilot always did during the feast to release for them a prisoner. And, and this is something that they were used to. As you see in verse 8, they came to Pilate asking him to do as he usually did. Release to us a prisoner of our choice. And Mark doesn't really spare any details. We, we know more about Barabbas than some other cases in the book of Mark. His name, he was in prison. We know that he was a rebel in the insurrection, and we know that he was already found guilty of murder. He wasn't up for trial. He was already found guilty of murder. 
It's interesting to note that, that, that Pilate seems to be aware that something's not right here, looking at verse 10. He says he sees that they're envy, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. He knew something wasn't right. And perhaps, as some commentators noted, this is why he brings Barabbas of all the prisoners. Understanding who Barabbas is, understanding how wicked, and understanding that he is found guilty of murder. Perhaps he's thinking, if I bring Barabbas, they might. I might have a way out of this. I might be able to free Jesus and kind of clean myself of this. So he makes his offer, Barabbas or Jesus. And as we see in verse 11, the chief priest wasn't having it. They were going to stir up the crowd in order to have Barabbas released. And he knows that Jesus is innocent. We see in verse 12 that Pilate goes, again, then what shall I do? He says, what evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. Pilate understood that Jesus was innocent. He understood that he wasn't guilty of any of these things that they're being brought before him, the charges. But ultimately, that didn't even matter to Barabbas because knowing that Jesus was innocent, what he was not willing to risk was his political power. Knowing that what he's about to do is wrong, still chooses to release the Jewish people, Barabbas. You may be sitting here and saying, how, how can this be? How can these people who just the other day were, were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, now turn and say, crucify him? You missed the point. If that's the question you ask, Shailene, a Christian rapper in his song, Were You There?, which is all about what we've been studying over the past several weeks, ends each of his verse saying we miss the point if we do not see ourselves in the crowd shouting crucify him. If we think we're better than these people here, because honestly, every time we choose the flesh over Christ, every time we choose this world, the comforts, pleasures over Jesus Christ, we are essentially shouting crucify him. We miss the point if we don't see ourselves in the crowd. Pilate, and the other accounts, we're told that he tries to wash his hands of the evil doing. He tries to make it known that I don't agree with this. I want nothing to do with this. But he couldn't do that. History remembers Pilate. We looked at the Apostles' Creed last weekend. There's only two people mentioned in the Apostles' Creed outside of the Godhead. It was Virgin Mary and it's Pontius Pilate, the one whom he suffered under. Pilate tried to clean his hands of this and he couldn't. He's remembered for all history as the one who Jesus suffered under. We miss the point if we don't see ourselves in the crowd. But what we see here in these last verses here is this beautiful picture of what it looks like for Christ to be our substitute. Literally a man who was already found guilty of murder. It's not in question. He's being set free. And Christ, an innocent man, is led to the cross. In return, this man, this murderer, is set free. And an innocent man is led to his death. The just dying for the unjust. This is a beautiful picture of a great substitution that happens 
We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Guilty people are set free from their sin. We are set free from our guilt because an innocent man took our place on the cross. Our sins are imputed onto him and his righteousness is given to us. And that is the only reason that we can stand before a holy and perfect God. It's the only reason that we can have hope today. It's the only reason that we can have the assurance that our sins have been forgiven because of his son took our place, took our punishment. We're the ones deserving of the flogging. We're the ones deserving of being crucified. And said he took our place, he took our condemnation. We have been set free despite our sins. We have been set free despite the guilty verdict that we have, all because of what Christ has done on our behalf. He takes that on himself. He is our great substitute. And as we see here, the guilty man gets set free, and we think that's wrong, but it happens each and every day with our sins. We are set free because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We should look at that and take great joy. We should look at that and fall to our knees and praise the God of this universe that he would look down on us and send his son to die on our behalf. Truth be told, we are unworthy of it, but God is rich in love and mercy and grace. As I close, I would like to talk to the unbeliever here. There is no in-between here. Like I mentioned earlier, Pilate tried to wash his hands. He tried saying, I want nothing to do with this. Pilate couldn't do that, and neither could you. You are faced with a choice, with a dilemma here. Are you going to be like Pilate and do what's wrong despite knowing what's right? Are you going to be like the crowd and choose Barabbas, or are you going to choose Jesus? Are you going to choose earthly treasures, pleasures, or are you going to choose eternal security there's only one answer to those questions there's only one answer that will bring you true joy and true hope in this world and that is Jesus Christ the Bible is clear everyone in this room everyone listening everyone who's ever walked this earth is guilty of sin all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God Romans 3 23 You see, there is no sliding scale when it comes to sin in God. God doesn't have a cheat sheet up there looking at the list of sins and then finding the corresponding punishment. That's not how this works. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin, any sin, whether it's a little white lie or a big fat lie, whether it's stealing a piece of gum or stealing a million dollars, whether it's lusting over someone or committing adultery, whether it's abusing someone or committing murder. In the eyes of God, sin is sin, and all of it, despite the offense, is punishable by death. No one is sinless, and everyone is guilty. But there is a way. God sent his only begotten son. 
and those who put their trust in the works of Jesus Christ, those who put their lean on him, put their faith in him, will be set free. Your debt will be cleared. Because Jesus is our, our great substitute. He came to this earth from heaven, through the virgin birth, took on our nature, yet remained fully God. The Bible says he walked this earth, was tempted and tried the same way we are, experiences the same things that we do, yet never sinned, never had a slip up. Not once did he ever think of sinning. He never sinned. A completely innocent man, guilty of nothing, then willingly goes to the cross and takes the wrath of God, takes the punishment that is rightfully yours and mine and puts it on himself, takes on those lashes, is being hung on that cross and dies on that cross. And it's through that that we now have the forgiveness of sins and nothing else can earn that. There's nothing you can do. doesn't matter how often you come to church, doesn't matter how many times you help a little old lady cross the street. Nothing you do can earn you the forgiveness of sins. It's only by putting your trust in the works of Christ. In doing so, you will have peace and you will have confidence that your sins have been forgiven. If you haven't done that yet, we would love to talk to you. We would love to just sit down and, and talk more about what it looks like to put your trust in the work of Christ. If you don't want to do that today, we would love to call. You can find our numbers, our emails, wherever it is. You can reach out to any of us. We would love to have that conversation with you of what it means to put your trust in the works of Christ. Now for the believers here, my brothers and sisters, life will get hard. We will, at some point, we will end up suffering. When the Bible talks about suffering, it's not some abstract thing that happens over there or happens to other people. It talks about suffering as something being real, something that we have to expect. Jesus in, in John 16, 33 says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will go through hard times. Things will suffer. You will have hardships. It is not something that we as Christians simply avoid because we come to church. We don't avoid that because our, our trust is in Jesus Christ. It is something that will happen. We have to expect it. But if we are going to make it in this Christian life, then we must learn to suffer well, we must learn to endure. We see this in today's passage, how, how Jesus was suffering well, how he remained silent, how he endured through it all, never once complained, could have ended it at any point. But he suffered well and endured. He was patient. We must be patient in our suffering Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 21 says, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. We must be patient in the midst of suffering. 
This goes against every inclination that we have. When we see that something's on the horizon, that hard times on the horizon, we want to get through that as fast as we can. We want to do whatever we can to just get past the pain and suffering. And oftentimes when we do that, we end up compromising. We must be patient in the midst of suffering. We must seek God. We must be praying to God in the midst of suffering or in hard times. Seeking his wisdom, seeking his clarity, asking him, what is the purpose of all this? Help me, Lord. Give me strength. Give me wisdom. Give me endurance. If we're going to suffer, if we're going to endure and, and through hard times, and we're going to endure through suffering, we must proclaim the gospel to ourselves. This is not something that is just for the non-believer. It is for us each and every day. We have to remember everything that Christ went through on our behalf. We have to remember the pain, the suffering he went through. We have to remember his death. We have to remember his resurrection. And as we preach that to ourselves, as we remember all of that, it will give you strength to endure. Thinking this is nothing compared to what my Lord and Savior went through. It will give you strength to keep moving forward. In order to endure through suffering and hard times, we must remain in Christian community. We must continue to do what we're doing today. There's been times where in the midst of hard times and trials in my life, gathering with the saints, singing songs that are praising God, reminding myself of the scripture, having it preached to me, gives me the faith, gives me the strength to endure through hard times. Oftentimes you can come and realize that is exactly what I needed. But that's not our initial response when we go through hard times and suffering. We want to pull away from community. Instead, we must lean in to Christian community. We must lean into our Sunday mornings. We must be a part. We must do some life groups and rub some elbows with people, letting people pour into us, sharing people what we're going through, having them praying for us, laying hands on us. We have to seek accountability. We have to also find discipleship. We have to be willing for people to pour into us. This is something that I believe we can be doing better here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church is promoting these discipleship groups where we are allowing people to speak into our life or we are giving up of our times and pouring into other people's lives. We have to be better at discipling one another, of letting people come into our lives, opening up our homes, saying this is the mess and saying help. I can't do this on my own. If we are going to suffer, if we're going to suffer well and endure through hard times, we must remain in community. Lastly, we, in order to endure through suffering hard times, we must remember God's word. We have to have it in our hearts. We have to remember the promises of God. All the things that he says will happen have come to happen. And the fact that he will come again. How could Jesus remain silent through all that? How can he, knowing what's coming, still not complain and still just go through it? He's trusting fully in the Father. He's not remaining silent because he has no answer, because he's confused. No, Jesus remains silent because he is surrendering to God's sovereignty. He is understanding that there is a greater purpose through all this. 
that the Father in heaven makes no mistakes. And so he's able to endure through all that because he's trusting in God and remembering what the scripture says. We must have that understanding. We must be confident in the scriptures, not in ourselves, but confident in the God of the Bible and confident in his word. That's what's going to help us to endure. If the word is not in our hearts, if we're not studying God's word, if we're not seeking it, it won't be there for us when we need it. We understand that God's word says in Proverbs 16, 4, that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The word of God says that God has a purpose for everything. We don't have to understand it. We just got to trust in his word. Remember his promises. Remembering that it says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor death, or height. Nothing, anything else in all of creation can separate us from the, the love of God in Christ Jesus. It means no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard life gets, nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. That is what his word tells us. That is what we have to walk into. That he is sovereign. That he is all powerful. That he is all loving. We remember the things of this word. We have it in our hearts and that will help us to endure through suffering and hard times. We have to have confidence on the promises of God. When we do that, when we do these things, we can learn to endure through suffering, endure through hard times. Because J.C. Ryle writes, nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. Our belief in the return of Christ can provide us. Our belief in the word of God and all of its promises can give us the courage, the strength, the wisdom, the discernment to endure through hard times and suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, Father, that we understand that without his death, without the suffering that he had endured, we couldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here, Father. gospel your love is so great Lord that it's through his death and it's through his resurrection that your word says that you have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west you never bring them up again father help us to live in that truth help us to know that you never bring up any wrongs Give us the wisdom, give us the strength, Lord, to endure, to persevere through hard times, Father. We can't do that without you, Lord. May we give our lives to you more in order for us to endure. We pray all this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.